offering a chemistry to the grower and to the distribution chain, you are in many ways offering the customer a solution to a problem that he has every single year. I, I grow corn, I grow beans, I grow cotton. I know that I'm going to have weeds, I'm going to have disease, and I'm going to have bugs. Those three things are a fact of life. And it creates a demand commercial pattern for the commercial professional in agribusiness that they know the customer is going to be there. Welcome to Fall Line Field Notes, a podcast exploring the intersection of technology with agriculture and food. We're your hosts. I'm Eric O'Brien. And I'm Clay Mitchell. Today, we're speaking with John Brubaker, CEO and founder of SmartWire an ag-focused software company in our portfolio that's been on quite a nice revenue ramp recently for an early-stage company. John is a man of many talents and experiences. He's worked in agriculture for the last 20 years. Six of those were at Arista Life Sciences, and then he became CEO of Plant Impact, the publicly traded ag biotech that he led for about seven years before starting SmartWire. Our conversation will connect with entrepreneurs and anyone else interested in how startups step into the market. We talk about what's important when building up a sales team, and John shares his thoughts on the opportunities for innovations in agriculture software. The conversation shares a personal side of John as he discusses shepherding capital and balancing growth between spending and preserving. We begin our interview with John talking about how SmartWire works in the ag tech industry and the way it's building a network to support farmers. In tech jargon, we are a business-to-business SaaS company. That means we offer software as a service. That's software that you can subscribe to, that you log into through a web browser on your computer, and it's entirely meant to be used by business people. We serve the people who serve the farmer. So if you imagine a grower, maybe one of your listeners who's producing an annual crop of corn or soybeans, and you have an annual set of requirements for a whole set of consumable technologies, seed, fertilizer, finance, insurance, all that stuff you need to produce a crop on an annual basis. You buy that from a complex community of companies that retail it, that distribute it, that manufacture it. And those companies, that community are smart wire customers. We offer them software to solve and improve a whole bunch of commercial problems and opportunities, things like pricing and product management, inventory management. We have been offering those tools, those pricing tools, those product management, incentive management tools for about four and a half years now. At least at the moment, focused on the US market. We've got a team in Denver, some folks in North Carolina. We've got an engineering and product presence in the UK and in London. And obviously, fortunate to have a relationship with the following team. What you described as that enablement software that you've created for businesses to do things like pricing, inventory management, etc. That sounds like technology that, frankly, has been around for a long time, at least in other industries. So you look at the likes of SAP and Oracle and big software companies, hand industry type software companies that have been offering these sorts of services for a long, long time. Why is there an opportunity in agriculture for you? That's a really great question. And I think it probably gets to some of the origins of the company itself. Prior to SmartWire, I was the CEO of a synthetic biostimulant company. It's a business that makes products that improve crop yields or crops' responses to environmental conditions. And what we found, you know, you spend all this time building products and helping them make their way through an industry value chain to be presented to a grower. And it was clear that information kind of gets lost at every little stage, you know, whether that's in the manufacturer's marketing and sales team or the retailer's uh, field crop advisor. And what that meant for the opportunity is, as I sort of watched, you know, this long game of telephone, this commercial telephone where little things would break all the way, is that there was an opportunity to connect these commercial processes. And that gets to the answer to your question, which is, you know, certainly 
pricing software and inventory management software and accounting software, all these sorts of like core business tools that companies use have existed for a long time. And agribusinesses, retailers, distributors, manufacturers, they have those tools too. What they haven't had and the opportunity for our company is to really solve problems for everyone at the same time by connecting some of these core commercial processes that they use to run their business. A manufacturer publishing a price list to a distributor, a retailer understanding the profit opportunity from some of the financial incentives that they receive from their distributors, a retailer's profit advisor understanding the product performance that they're advising the grower to use in his crop. That opportunity, that connection opportunity, that accuracy opportunity, that didn't exist in agriculture. It's just really beginning. And it certainly wasn't something that some of these you know, solved problems of old school software have really cracked yet. I think one of the things that got us interested that there was an opportunity here was learning anecdotally how certain things were being done within some of the large retailers who have become your customers. And in particular, just the way that they accounted for things like rebates from manufacturers. Can you describe a little bit of your observation of how that had typically been done within very, like we're talking multi-billion dollar revenue type retailers to track billions of dollars of potential rebate profit. How were they handling that? Yeah, yeah. And so I think maybe first couple maybe foundational questions like what's a you know what's a rebate? You know, certainly your grower listeners will understand rebate programs that are offered to them by organizations like Bayer or BSF or even large distribution cooperatives like Winfield United. Those same sets of incentives and programs and things are drive much of the margin and profitability of distributors and retailers in the United States. And we've certainly found that the status quo for managing that is good old Microsoft Excel. You know, that little green icon that exists on the bottom tray of every computer that you buy and you've bought in the last 30 years. And that has been the method for, as you say, multi-billion dollar corporations to try to get an understanding of the cost of the products that they're buying and supplying and the amount of money that they're making. Certainly back from my finance days, you know, you open up some of these long loved and long abused Excel files with, you know, mistakes and notes. And we even found one customer that had an Excel note that had the list of every single price change over the last 14 years in one cell. And so the price of the product was, you know, equals 100 plus two minus four plus six minus eight minus six. And that was the history of you know, this product that they'd been selling tens of millions of dollars of for 12 years. And it's a great opportunity for the customers who are thinking about buying the software to modernize some of these processes. You know, nobody likes running their business that way. It's really just for the lack of either awareness or the emergence of better ways of doing it. When you think about the go-to-market challenge for software companies writ large, but then maybe specifically within the ag industry, we've invested in a number of software companies in ag over the years. That is one of the biggest challenges for companies. You know, they may have an interesting product, but getting it into the hands of customers, convincing them to pay in an industry, I think that has historically not placed a lot of value on software. Can you give us a sense for the go-to-market challenge that you faced initially and how you've overcome some of those challenges? I'd say probably I bracket that into a couple different themes there. And hopefully these observations will either mirror what you see with your other portfolio companies, some of the folks you advise, or you know, maybe some help or cautionary tales. I kind of bucket that in two categories. I think first the challenge of software companies that are choosing to serve the grower himself or herself. You know, obviously that providing a product offering to a grower in the form of software means that you have a tool that you're offering. 
that can account for the full complexity of your customer's business. And the process of growing crops is one of the most complex tasks on earth. It involves a living biological system in the form of a plant and soil. It involves a complex understanding of financial markets in the form of crop prices, a huge regulatory burden, labor management challenges, equipment challenges. And so the challenge there for a software company is to have a product that can handle all of those complexities and in a way that delivers value for what is essentially a business person, but then be at a price point that ultimately that customer is willing to pay. That has meant that many software companies serving the grower either have spent so much on features in the sense that the product is too complicated, are facing a price point that they ultimately can't pay a sales force. I mean, you're sort of stuck as a company because ultimately, you know, farmer might pay $500 a year, $1,000 a year, maybe $10,000 a year for software, but you have to hire sales reps that cost 100 to 150 grand to sell that product. There are some parallels to what we do, which is to sell to larger businesses, retailers, distributors, manufacturers, in the sense that in many ways are all of those same complexities still exist. There are some things that I think we as a company have tapped into to make our life a bit easier. First is recruiting. We've really focused on hiring salespeople who know the process of selling technology rather than necessarily the domain of ag. We have plenty of people in our business who know the agricultural space, but selling software is a particular specialized discipline and it requires people who know how to do it. I think the second thing around the way, at least the way we're doing it, and maybe some lessons there is to focus on the network effects. You know, we talked about how we're trying to solve some of those connections between buyers and sellers, between distributors and manufacturers, between distributors and retailers. Our software does get easier to sell the more customers who buy it because the way it connects those businesses creates value for all of them, the more of them who become our customers. And that, you know, either folks in your portfolio or folks listening to the podcast who are setting out on their journey, that certainly is a way to make life easier in this sector. We work with some very large manufacturers in the US market who are offering and using our tools to publish prices and product incentives to their distributors and retailers. They log into our software, they figure and publish price and a rebate incentive, they click publish, their customer, the distributor and retailer will receive an alert, they'll log into a platform that has a version of the product and that creates a product experience for that recipient of that content who now has a call to action to potentially buy themselves. But if you are that publisher, the more distributors who are receiving content, the richer your experience. If you're a distributor retailer, you are receiving information from your suppliers. The more of your suppliers who are publishing to you, the richer your experience. It doesn't cost you any more money to buy SmartWire. The more of your suppliers or customers who are in the market. And so you as a customer have an incentive to help us grow our business. We have an incentive to help you make more connections to your trade partners. John, you're digitizing parts of your customer's business that are very seasonal. It's a long business cycle for ag retailers. And I would imagine that affects every element of your software design, of your sales. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the long business cycle and seasonality of your retailers. What we found is that the thing that you are digitizing and the thing that the customer cares about will follow that seasonal and commercial rhythm. But the overall workflow and the process and the tools actually become something that the customer can use consistently over the year. Give you an example. When a manufacturer will use our software tools to publish out what the industry calls nets, which is essentially the simplified version of the cost of the product they're distributing, that's something that the distributors really care about. 
between about October and like April, May, June, when they're right in the middle of their selling and pricing cycle. But the same piece of software will also then create and calculate the payments and the earnings on those particular incentives. And that's something that the customer really starts to care about and call it May to November. And so it's the same tool set. And we start to see a different focus of the customers alongside the seasonal rhythm. But we have been fortunate that by focusing on these particular problems of commercial information, we've had been able to have something that's sort of durable 12 months a year. I'd like to circle back for a second to one of the points that you made regarding how you have decided to build your sales force. And you made the comment that you can sort of choose between domain experts, software sales experts. You have chosen proactively to hire software sales experts, I guess implicitly because you believe it's easier to teach them the domain component versus the how to sell component. And I'm curious when you mentioned that selling software is a very specific set of skills. Can you illustrate that a little bit more for folks? Because this, I think, is a question for company building. Anyone going into ag is, where do I optimize on the skills with respect to the sales process and selling software versus relating to my customer from a domain perspective? Yeah, I think you phrased it almost perfectly there. Relating to the customer is the key issue, plus also the skill set of the sales professional himself. My background prior to working at SmartWire in agriculture, I was involved in two chemical businesses. And offering a chemistry to the grower and through the distribution chain, you are in many ways offering the customer a solution to a problem that he has every single year. I I grow corn, I grow beans, I grow cotton. I know that I'm going to have weeds, I'm going to have disease, and I'm going to have bugs. Those three things are a fact of life. And it creates a demand commercial pattern for the commercial professional in agribusiness that they know the customer is going to be there. It's like selling gasoline or food, things that exist. And so then it's really just a question of which one I'm going to buy and from whom. Technology, software, particularly in a business-to-business environment, software is a tool to embed a change within a business, a collection of humans who have come together to do something economic together, retail fertilizer farmers. That's my thing. I got 200 of us and we've come together. And we do our work in a particular way. And that develops its patterns and its processes and some work and some don't. And along comes the technology salesman and technology in the broad sense of business software. Is it a new spray rig? Is it a new you know, seed deployment technology, any of that stuff. But it requires humans to change. And particularly in the reality of a business where change requires budgets, it requires decision-making, it requires political alliances, it requires prioritization, you know, overcome of risk and fear. All of those things are consistent amongst what the sales professional in technology faces whether he is selling smart wire pricing and rebate management software, or if he is selling an Oracle database, or if he is selling construction management software in the construction industry. Watching that pattern and doing that on a quarterly basis, on an annual basis, repetitively with a sales funnel where you win and you lose, those are things that technology professionals know how to do. The professional that is consistently serving existing demand that you know that is going to be there, it is a very different muscle. And so we have identified that we want to hire people that have developed big biceps, not big hamstrings, because that produces a better outcome in this particular thing. Maybe you can tell us a sort of like near and dear to my heart, because by the way, we have not learned this through lucky successes. Like we have learned this through failure, right? Like it's an insight through having made this mistake four or five different times, because in many ways, we thought we had to hire people who were relatable. Let's hire people who 
know what fungicide is and can talk about azoxystrobin and understand what Roundup Ready means and all of those things that will allow them to sit with the retailer or the distributor and go, I've been there. In many ways, I can serve that role because I can talk about glyphosate and glyphosate pricing and all that kind of thing. But ultimately, getting the salesperson who can ask the right questions, who can understand who has budget, who can understand who has problem, who has pain, and how we can match what we do with the customer's problem to create a benefit for the customer, that comes from tech most often rather than necessarily from seeds and chemicals and fertilizer. Yeah, that's a great insight. I think that's one of the things that we see companies getting hung up on. You talked about that qualification component of the sale here. And when you have a sales team that is relatable and enjoys being out in the field talking to customers that they can relate to, if they don't have the discipline of the technology salesperson, you end up, frankly, with a lot of junk in your pipeline. Do you have observations around whether there are metrics that you would expect to track closely in a more traditional SaaS environment that you think don't apply in ag or apply differently? I think the classic disciplines matter. You know, we think about cost of acquisition. We think about time to recover our sales costs. We think about the days of sales cycle. Those things are germane and relevant. In many ways, reassuring to be asked that question and come up with no differences because, in fact, we do selling technology in what is known and is truly a tough environment to sell technology, you can kind of get yourself into that mental model sometimes on a down day because sales is hard and you go, oh, maybe it is different. Maybe it's, you know, the warning light for me talking to any sales professional is ag. As soon as anybody starts talking to you about the weather, you're about to have a conversation about is some problem in your funnel because <laughs> there's always some excuse about why something in the weather means that you're not going to close something by some date. And it's nonsense. Like there's always a way through it. This is a hot button for Clay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're farming outside. We expect that we've already planned for the weather and don't want to see that as an excuse. John, one thing I'm very curious about and is kind of mysterious for me is if pricing efficiency or inefficiency of products with really variable demand in ag. So you were talking earlier about a lot of crop protection is like gasoline or food where there's often a pretty predictable demand. And we'll often plan herbicide applications before the season and you know execute on it. And you see farmers do that across broad areas. With fungicide and insecticide, it will be a lot more responsive to within-season pests. And so you see demand go way up and down, but I don't see pricing change very much. And that always surprises me. I know there are times where there's a lot of excess inventory sitting there. We don't see price going down. And when demand goes way up, I don't see price adjusting to ration that product and drive it towards a place where it has highest value. I was wondering if that's what your observation has been there, if your product and helping retailers manage their inventory kind of helps with some of that price efficiency? Or is it just not an issue because these are things that have such transportability, shelf stability, that it's better just to have even prices and ride out the highs and lows? That might be a more research play because actually on upstream of the farm where you may be forming those observations, there's actually quite a bit of dynamism there. Now, there isn't dynamism in the actual list price. Where the dynamism and pricing is happening is in the incentive. And so you'll have X product, which is a $100 list from manufacturer to distributor. It may go from distributor to retailer at 106 and the farmer will experience it anywhere between 100 and 112 right? Depending on how the retailer sets their pricing policy and how much pricing discretion they give to their crop advisor. And so then you would say, well, wait a minute, it's 106 and I see it at that level on the farm gate. 
all the time and that doesn't move up and down. Well, in fact, what's happening behind the scenes is a blurry of activity around annual, quarterly, you know, even weekly incentives that are offered by various parties to others. And so that actually does create a highly dynamic pricing and costing environment, which is part of the reason why we're in business is that's hugely complicated for the people who are experiencing it. Now to the farmer, that may not manifest itself as bubbly as you see it upstream of him. Partly because I think, you know, for the farmer, you're spending eight or nine hundred dollars an acre to grow corn and 40 bucks of that is chemicals. The fact that like the guys who are responsible for the 40 bucks in chemicals are upstream, like playing all these games amongst each other, you care, right? As long as your chemical budget is between 35 and 43 dollars, because that's what you decided at the beginning of the year. The fact that there's all this nonsense happening amongst your suppliers, which is in fact highly dynamic. So John, we're recording this podcast at a time where we're now about a year into what we would call a bit of a down market. From a finance perspective, we look at where public markets are relative to the downturn in Q2 of last year. There's always a lag effect of public market valuations making their way into private markets. What we see across the venture landscape today is a situation where companies in need of capital are having to face a lot more challenging environment, both in terms of demand for their offerings, you know, supply of capital, given what's happened in a lot of venture portfolios. And I think one of the things that we've observed with you has been a level of frugality from the very beginning that has, I think, at times made us wonder, is the opportunity cost of not spending too high? And then, you know, to see this environment take hold and then really appreciate that outlook. Talk to us a little bit about where your kind of view on burn rate, capital efficiency, where does that discipline come from? How do you think about the trade-offs between spending to grow versus seeing product market fit and essentially making capital last? And you know, what, if anything, would you advise other entrepreneurs in this environment about that? I think probably two bits of context over the course of my SmartWire journey, and then maybe a bit of personal history and some vulnerability on this one. SmartWire got started in 2019 officially, but we were beginning the seed capital process at the back end of 2018, which in many ways was a was a fine or good market for companies trying to raise seed capital. And there were enthusiastic investors that were excited to back us at, would say, a fair seed valuation in April of 2019. In a way that folks said, look, go, you know, capital markets are good. March of 2020, I remember a call with a number of folks who were close to the venture markets who said, this venture capital is switched off. Venture's done. The pandemic has happened. You know, beware. And yet, 12 months later, it was probably one of the frothiest venture capital markets in the last 25 years. And certainly then by 12 months after that, the inflationary impacts of what second COVID Protection Act or whatever it was called hit, things were shut off, valuations passed. So in the course of sort of four years, the capital availability signaling from the venture community to little companies like SmartWire went up, it went down, it went up, it went down. In the way that if you're sort of as a business person relying on that source of capital, you can clearly get your signals wrong depending on which year you're listening. The second thing I would offer on this one, and this is maybe sort of the thought for the other entrepreneur, is part of this depends on your personal time horizon and appetites. And it's just a great sort of bit of venture write-ups that I read online once. It was about a sort of number of at-bats you get as a business person. And if you are a 23-year-old startup founder 
who has been fortunate enough to have a good idea and enough traction to get a ton of money from a blue chip firm, and you go like hell, and it ends up being worth nothing four years later, you're still only 27 years old. And so what the hell? Do it again. Do it three more times. And you know the other approach, and this is the other thing that also floats around in Northern California, if you are already rich, right? which in that sense, you have come from Salesforce or PayPal or whatever it is, to the extent that you take the same capital strategy, which is you raise a bunch of money, you run like hell, it totally fails. The impact to your personal career is negligible. You're still already rich, right? And this is just an artifact of maybe you know what drives SmartWire's capital strategy. It is the sort of the background of the founder, me, in the sense that I was neither 22 nor was I already wildly wealthy. And so, in that sense, we are a business with massive ambition, and we are going to hit what is equivalent to a home run. But we are taking a capital strategy that says we're going to get on first, and then we're going to get to second, and then we're going to get to third. And we are not going to strike out and we're not going to get tagged out between the two bases. And it doesn't mean that a double is okay. It just means that the surest way to not get home is to not get on first, right? And so, I don't know, maybe that comes with age. Maybe that comes with prior experience. Maybe that comes from you know, bringing to SmartWire a whole number of personal and professional screw-ups that inform like, you know, current decision-making, you know, all success is built on a lifetime of mistakes. And none of this advice, so to speak, may be applicable to other people who may be listening to your podcast. But it certainly has been, been work for us in that we're, we have great customer support. We have good cash reserves. We're a profitable company. We are proud of our growth and have great prospects ahead of us. And those things feel really good in this environment. So, you know, we do feel a bit validated <laughs> for having taken the approach that we have to our use of capital over the last few years. John, thanks for sharing that and the sort of vulnerability to share that personal angle on the philosophy. But I would agree with you that it is absolutely exemplary, particularly in this environment, but in any environment, to have shepherded the capital with a sense of responsibility, not just to yourself and your ambitions, but to your investors and really having such a focus on demonstrating product market fit, validating that with customer traction and growing the business in a reasonable way that gives you a ton of option value. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fallline Field Notes. And thank you, John Brubaker, for sharing this hour with us. I really enjoyed recording that hour with John. He is, in our portfolio, I think, first of all, one of the most articulate CEOs we have and one who, when I said that he was frugal, I was not joking. He is, most of the time, as board members, we're trying to get CEOs to ratchet back a bit on burn rate. And what we've seen at SmartWire is we've actually had to encourage John to spend money. And he has been so maniacally focused on demonstrating product market fit and doing that at low a burn rate as possible for spending. I just really admire that about him. And it is something that sets him apart from other CEOs that we work with. I'm curious, Clay, your thoughts on, from your perspective in the field and seeing what SmartWire brings, you raised some interesting points where it wasn't clear that the grower sees really what's happening behind the curtain here. No, I think there's a lot of dynamism in the pricing that we don't see at the grower level. And it really speaks to this unmet need that ag retailers have that I think the startup community has missed. And with John's unique background in software and agriculture, he saw that need and has been demonstrating product market fit. Well, that was fun. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Fall Line Field Notes. 
You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also come to fall-line-capital.com and download the podcast there. We look forward to seeing you in our future episodes.